Christ Jesus, we come before you today saved by your grace, rescued from disaster. Many of us, we didn't even know that we needed rescuing. But Lord, you knew and you saved us even when we rejected you. And so God, we give you our hearts again today as we worship you and offer unthrottled praise. We just want to worship you like people who just can't help it. We want to give you glory. We want to we want to live like we mean to be citizens of your kingdom. And Lord, that means that even our prayers have to change. And so we ask that you would, by your spirit, shape the things that we ask you for. Change the way that we talk to you and to each other about our troubles, about our hopes and dreams. Lord, we all have come today with some burden or another. Some small, some large, some involved in our very earthly lives. And all of it, Lord, is not unknown to you. And so we, we ask for faith to persevere in the midst of difficulty, to, to witness to your grace and our eternal hope, even while we are suffering, even dying. Lord, for each one here who is bearing some burden that is weakening them in their resolve, we ask for strength from your Holy Spirit. For each one here who is weakening in their commitment to full citizenship in the kingdom of God, we just ask that you would help them to find the courage to step all the way in. And Lord, we pray for each other that we might be of one accord as the church was in the early days as the believers united by the Holy Spirit shared in your grace and your glory and in proclaiming your word. And Father, finally, because I find that sometimes the words are just not adequate, it gives us great comfort to say together the words Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we were reminded last week that as Christian believers, we owe all of our allegiance to Jesus Christ, that he is our Lord. We heard that citizens of the kingdom are essentially subversives and insurgents in the world. And we live right among the general population. We're like sleeper cells, only we shouldn't be sleeping. We should be activated. And the citizens of the kingdom have a mission. I told you last week and that, that certain members of the citizenry are called to awaken the others to their mission. So that's my job is to awaken you to your mission. Today, I want to express to you what your mission is. I want to share with you Christ's agenda. We'll start by reading his own words in Matthew 5, starting at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, just before the reading that I just shared with you, Jesus was uh, doing the, the basics of what he just shared. And Matthew wants us to know what that means. So what you'll notice in the book of uh, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, is that he starts out by telling you what Jesus did. And then he tells you what Jesus said about what Jesus is doing. And then he ends by telling you again what Jesus did. So what you have in these first few chapters, first six or so, nine chapters really of Matthew, are descriptions of Jesus doing his agenda, preaching his agenda, and then doing his agenda. And that's, that's what we heard just now. Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Or to restate it this way, since we've been on this kingdom thing lately, talking about the kingdom of Christ, can you also hear him saying that this is how it is in the kingdom? This is, how it mean, this is what it means to live in the kingdom, to be citizens of the kingdom, that Kingdom citizens preach the coming of the kingdom, the way of the kingdom, and the power of the kingdom. So then, as I said, Matthew gives us a series of examples of Christ's living out his agenda, and he asks us to live out the same agenda. In this passage that we just read, you hear Jesus giving a completely countercultural explanation of what he has come to do. At this point in Jesus's ministry, he has arisen and gotten what then would have been global attention. I mean, you know how a person can be an internet sensation these days in a matter of hours and then it goes away. It used to be 15 minutes of fame, now it's about five minutes of fame. And people knew about Jesus what you will learn, those of you who are traveling to the Holy Land in a couple of weeks, is that Galilee, uh, the Capernaum and the Mount of the Beatitudes, the place where he preached this message, is centered right in the middle of what was called the Decapolis or the Ten Cities. And the Ten Cities were called the Decapolis because that was a Greek word that described the Ten Cities. And it was part of the Greek culture, which was then evolved into the Roman culture that was present in that area. So what I'm saying is, is that Jesus was right in the heart of a highly modern, worldly area, you know, where, where they were surrounded by 
cosmopolitan modern cities. And so when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he drew people from all of those places. When the word was out that he was there at Capernaum and that he was on the hillside nearby preaching, the what I like to call the, the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount seminar, because I have a feeling it was more like a camp meeting. I think that he was speaking every day for several hours at a time every day and that people just kept accumulating there and they kept camping out there and and so he went on for several days and and this is my opinion of the situation based on certain practical things but people could walk within a few hours from any of those 10 cities and be where Jesus was so he had set himself up in a very central location and what did he use this particularly unique moment in history to do, to express his agenda. Now, when you think about why people came to see him and what was their fascination with him, there's a variety of explanations that you can imagine. There were people who were religious leaders who came to see whether he was going to be a threat to the status quo. There were zealots who were coming to see if he was getting ready to launch the war on Rome and then subsequently the war on the religious hierarchy that ruled Jerusalem and, and uh, Judea and Israel. There were people who came there because they were hungry for something real. And they wanted to know if this was for real, if this was something I could sink my teeth into, if this was a way that I could direct my life and find meaning. So they all gathered in a variety of ways and, and none of them expected him to say this. None of them said that the way we will wage war on the enemy and win in the end is by being people who are persecuted, people who are meek, people who show mercy, people who desire to make peace. That's the last thing anybody expected him to say. It was the most profound thing he said. And what I want to share with you for a few moments is exactly how that would play out in real life because I think that some of Jesus' words and intentions in this Sermon on the Mount have been so misunderstood over the years that we found all kinds of reasons to make it fit our agenda, which is exactly the opposite thing of what Jesus intended when he made it his agenda for us on that day in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said to them, you are blessed if you are a peacemaker, you are blessed if you are meek. And what does it mean to be meek? That's, the, that's a very difficult question. I'm going to confide in you in a way. I don't know that it's wise for a pastor to say some of the things that I say, but it hasn't stopped me in 25 years, so... I can tell you that some of the worst things I've seen go wrong in churches like Shiloh is when a small group of people or even a single individual has held the entire church hostage because they have a really nasty disposition. They have a tendency to throw a fit or a temper tantrum when things don't go the way they think they should. They have a tendency to make others so frightened of confronting them that they just don't confront them. And then this person gets out of control or this group of people get out of control. And suddenly the whole purpose of the church seems to be shifting to whatever so-and-so thinks it should be. Now I've seen that happen over and over again in churches, not just this one. But I know it's happened here too. 
And so sooner or later, someone very courageously has to stand and confront this person, but now they're confronting someone who in some ways has become like a giant, like Goliath. It's true. And here's what I know. I've been that guy who says, okay, enough is enough. There's more going on here than just us and just you. This isn't about you. This isn't about me. This isn't even about some of us. It's about Christ and Christ's agenda for Christ's church, which when we say it with a capital C, we mean the body. We mean everybody who's a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, everyone who is saved by God's grace through Christ and dedicated to having been new, born new and filled with the Spirit. That's the church with a capital C. And those people sometimes gather in places like this. That's the most important thing, Christ. And so I've been that unlucky person who has to say to those group of people or that one person who has completely lost track of what the true agenda is and has so brutalized anybody who would confront them that they're afraid to confront them. I have to be the one that says, I'm not going to back down. This has to change and it has to change now. And here's what they always say every single time. Well, that's not very Christian. Am I right? Because in church, we don't say anything to anybody they don't want to hear, right? Is that what we do in church? Remember, this is about being peacemakers. The whole series is about being peacemakers. And you know the first place you've got to practice this and get it right? In your house and then in your church. You've got to learn to be a peacemaker in your home, and then you've got to learn to be a peacemaker in your church. Because if you can get it down in those two places, you'll be better at it everywhere else. And these are safe places to learn. So I'm being really honest with you. It's a cop-out when somebody tells you, you can't say something that makes me feel bad because that's not Christian. Baloney. Do you know when Jesus said meek in the Sermon on the Mount, he was using a word that translates backward to warhorse. And by warhorse, what it means is, is great power under control. That's what Jesus means when he says meek. He says you are a war horse because you have enormous power behind you, but it's under control. Whose control? Christ the King, right? And so you are a war horse if you are a born-again believer filled with the Spirit. You have enormous authority and power. You have the authority Christ gives you to tell Satan where to go and how to do it. But it comes with a great deal of discipline, which is the very essence of the word discipleship. And so as disciples of Christ, you are war horses. You're powerful, but you're under control. It doesn't say anything about being nice for niceness sake. It doesn't say anything about rolling over and taking abuse just because it feels like the Christian thing to do. Let me explain what I mean, because this is very important to get it right. And there's no better way to get this right than to look at Christ's example. He did not command the storm to be silent. Well, i got to rephrase that. He didn't ask the storm to be silent, did he? He didn't say, would you please knock it off? We're trying to sleep here. Did he say that to the storm? No, he stood up and he said, what's wrong with you guys? You're war horses. you got the power to do this yourselves. And he says to the storm, knock it off. And that's it. Right? There's nothing meek or mild or weird about him. You know, no childishness there. He's not afraid of the storm. And he has the power to command it to be still, and it is still. That's meek. That's power 
under control. Jesus commanded his friend Lazarus to come out of the tomb, didn't he? He said, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. He didn't say, Lazarus, I've asked God if it'd be all right with him. And he says, if it's okay with you, then you can go ahead and rise from the dead and come on out, okay? He didn't say that, did he? That's not how Jesus did things. He said, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And people said, you don't want to do that. He'll stink. He's been dead too long. And he said, come out of the tomb. And by the way, you guys get over there and unwrap him right now. Does this sound like what you thought meek was about? War horse, power under control. Then he says, Father, let this cup pass for me. And the father says, no, not this time, son. You know what we got to do, and you know it's going to be painful. And so this time, Jesus submits. He has the power to call legions of angels to defend him, but he doesn't. He takes up the cross because it's part of the Father's will and the greater purpose. So you want to know what meekness means in the Lord Jesus' way of saying it? Be like him. Exercise his authority and power over things when that's called for and exercise the willingness to sacrifice and suffer persecution when that is called for. So let me break it down a little further for you. What I think Jesus wants us to understand is in order to be peacemakers, we have to recognize that you can be assertive and authoritative where it's called for, but you don't have to be violent about it. See, the real problem we have is we don't recognize that violence is the problem, that it's the issue. We have to recognize that what we don't want to do, the thing that it really is not Christian, the thing that, that one could justly say is not Christian, is if it results in violence. And here's what violence is. It's directly, intentionally inflicting pain on another person. When you inflict pain on someone, you're being violent. When you're hurting them, especially on purpose, that's violence. Now, violence can range anywhere from acts of war where there's destruction and horrible death and, 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 and terrible criminal behavior, and violence can come right down to the way we choose to talk to one another. We're violent in the way we talk to each other sometimes, right? If you have any background in child psychology or anything like that, or if you're just a seasoned parent or grandparent, you know that sometimes you can speak harshly to a little one especially, and you might as well have smacked them upside the head because they experience the pain the same way. The violent communication injures people just as definitely as violent physical behavior does. And so what you need to hear Jesus saying in this passage of these 10, these Beatitudes rather, is he's saying in the Beatitudes, you're blessed if you're strong, committed to peace, and, uh, and not violent. Not violent. He's telling them that this, is, this war is not going to be won with violence, that, that the victory over the enemy isn't going to result as armies are raised and violence is inflicted on the enemy. That's not how this is done. Where did violence come from anyway? Have you ever thought about this? Before I tell you that, I got to think, I just thought of something funny. If anybody's got a hearing problem right now, they're probably wondering why I'm talking about violins, right? 
There's a famous story about Lawrence Welk. You remember, you know who he is? Lawrence Welk was on an interview program one day and somebody said, what do you think about all this violence in the world, Lawrence? And he said, well, I like the violence, but I'm particularly fond of the cello. <laughs> We're talking about violence. We're talking about harm that is inflicted on others, especially intentional harm. And it started in the garden. The man and the woman were tempted by Satan who crept into the garden and who taught them to disobey God, who showed them that they had the capacity to doubt God, and so they did. And as a result, they were cast out of the garden. Something had to die in order to cover them with skins. They were told that there would be pain in childbirth and there would be pain in the way that they had to toil in order to raise food to eat. And there would be death because they would kill and eat certain animals too. There would be death because certain animals would be sacrificed. Remember, their children, Cain and Abel, were making sacrifices. It was as early as that. Violence came into the world because of Satan. So sin and violence are two sides of the same coin. They're two edges, I should say, on a sword with their pain that they inflict. Where you see violence, you must recognize that Satan is at work. Where violent speech is coming out of one's mouth and causing pain to another person, it's Satan. It's part of his agenda. I often imagine Satan cackling and laughing whenever he sees Christians fighting with each other and hurting one another in the name of Jesus. He must delight in that. Some of us will go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in about a month or less, and when we're standing in that place, we'll be looking at a place that has seen tens of thousands of violent deaths mostly Christian on Christian, and all because it was a disagreement over religious practices and doctrinal understandings, must make Satan just cackle with joy to see Christians hurting one another. Blessed are the peacemakers because they're meek. They are strong, but they're disciplined. And their discipline is never more important than when they resist violence. And for most of us, that violence will manifest most frequently in our speech. I read a book about five years ago that changed my life. Now, apart from the Bible, I haven't read too many books that were life-changing, but this one did. And it was an assigned reading that I thought I wouldn't like because I thought the title was ridiculous. The title of the book was Nonviolent Communication. And I thought, oh yeah, great. This is a professor telling me I have to read a book called Nonviolent Communication. This is going to be great. I can tell. Boy, was I wrong. This book was fantastic. Changed my life. In fact, after I finished the book, I gobbled up everything I could find by its author, and I have put it into practice in my life ever since. And the better I get at it, the more profound the results. Nonviolent Communication was written by a man who wasn't Christian who had no intention of writing on a Christian agenda. This was a man who was simply tired of pain being caused by people's, the way people talk to one another. Marshall Rosenberg was his name, and he wanted to find a way to help people to communicate with one another in a way that was nonviolent 
And basically it was a method of conflict resolution that would result in people being understood without hurting one another. Again, great power under control, disciplined power. So Rosenberg didn't set out to prove what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, but that's what he did. He gave a simple way that a Christian or anyone else who cares deeply about the person across the table from them or wherever they're talking with others to just hear. And so if I told you that there was a way that you could come to my office to complain to me about a problem and then I might actually hear you and listen to you and then respond to you by acknowledging that I understand. I really understand. And then if I could say to you in some way what I needed for you to know and what I needed for you to do to help us be at peace with one another and that somehow the conversation would end with both of us being at peace with one another and never having said words that cause pain to each other. You know, sometimes people are so unskilled at nonviolent communication that they wait until they can't contain themselves anymore and then they go to the person they want to hold responsible for what bothers them and then they immediately attack with horrible, hurtful sayings. And then when they're done talking, they didn't really mean to hurt you because they see you sort of laying there in the puddle of your own blood, figuratively speaking, and they realize they just did that to you and they feel really bad about it. But they didn't know how to express themselves. They had no idea how to express themselves. And so what I want you to do is consider seriously how you talk to one another in your own home, in your workplace, and here at the church. And if there's a way that you can say things about church, about life, about each other, to each other, that isn't violent, that wouldn't hurt someone. Do you say things that you wish certain people wouldn't overhear because you're sure they'd be hurt by what you were saying? Then think about how you can say it so that it wouldn't hurt them if they heard it. You see, there's nothing wrong with discussing the mutual desire to better ourselves and to be a far greater version of Christ now than we were a few years ago and not nearly as awesome in our image of Christ and imitation of Christ as we will be one day. We're all striving for the same goal as we seek sanctification together, which is greater holiness or greater set-apartness for the sake of Christ. And, and if we urge each other on and we're not saying things that knock each other down along the way, we're not in a race where we have to beat the others in our family of faith. We're in a race where we want to urge each other on. So if we can think of how everything we say has the potential to turn violent, we're living out this command to be meek peacemakers. Now, I'm going to wrap this up because I want you to hear the most important thing, which is why this is something you should do. You're already motivated, I suppose, because you're thinking about relationships where you wish you had said things better or done things better. You're probably thinking, why can't, why can't the politicians hear this? Why can't the people in our church who are divided over certain doctrinal issues and things, why are they fighting and being so hurtful to one another? Why can't they hear this message from Christ to just listen to each other and care deeply about one another and to find a way to resolve our differences without violence? Why is that such a problem? problem for them. Because 
it wouldn't stop being a problem for them or for us unless we were willing to submit our agenda to Christ's agenda. It wouldn't stop being a problem for us if we would acknowledge that we're not in charge of our lives. If we were willing to admit that even if something makes us unhappy, that doesn't mean that it's that important to change. It's all about one's perception of oneself. And the whole point that Christ wants us to understand, read the Apostle Paul's works, and this will just, Galatians and Ephesians especially, just jump right off the page at you. It's not about you. And so when you realize that, you're beginning to enter into a spirit of obedience I had already gotten these ideas into my head and I was trying so hard to figure out how I could express the why behind this. And then I happened to read in my daily devotions, Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest on a certain day, he said this and I realized that he summed up what I want you to understand. He said, all of God's revealed truths are sealed up until they are open to us through obedience. You will never open them through philosophy or thinking. But once you obey, a flash of light comes immediately. Let God's truth work into you by immersing yourself in it, not by worrying into it. The only way you can get to know the truth of God is to stop trying to find out and by being born again. Find the truth by being born again. If you obey in the first thing he shows you, then he instantly opens up the next truth to you. So the point is, if you will endeavor starting today, starting right now, to be more obedient to Christ your King's agenda, which is to be peacemakers, if you will recognize an opportunity even today to choose a nonviolent approach to a situation that would normally cause you to say something hurtful or hateful, then the very act of obedience that caused you to do that will create an opportunity for the Lord to reveal more truth to you and enable more spiritual energy to work through you. Every time you break down one of those selfish Satan-driven, sinful attributes of your own personality, you open more of the Spirit's power to bring about your transformation and then through you changing the world. That's what we mean by being disciples and changing the world. I'll give you an example to close with. If I'm watching football today... There will be certain players that I just haven't liked very much over the years and certain teams I've never been fond of. And I'm not even going to say which ones they are because if I'd have preached this sermon a year ago, I would have told you who they were. But then it occurs to me that even that is wrong. Now I might get tempted to feel certain violent thoughts towards certain teams and certain players and then I will have the Spirit of God through my obedience revealed to me that that's a pretty stupid way to spend your precious life's energy. Finding fault with somebody you don't know, playing for a team in a city you've never been to, doing something that is entirely worldly, which is simply a sporting event. Really. 
Can you imagine if you can get your mind wrapped around the concept of changing the way you approach even your thoughts when you're watching TV and, and, and you know, if you're watching Fox and you're mad at all the liberals or if you're watching CNN and you're mad at all the conservatives, if you could just get the power under control and discipline your thoughts, you'd be moving toward being that war horse that Jesus wants you to be, a war horse that wins the battle through peace as a nonviolent peacemaker. That's the goal. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts that we might truly be everything you've called us to be, your peacemakers. We want to love you and serve you as our King Christ Jesus, and we want to be faithful servants by obeying your plans. And we do all this for your namesake. Amen. Amen.